Welcome back, everyone, to another episode of the Schoenstatt Way of Life podcast. I am your host, Julia Monin, and this is the podcast for April of 2020. This is a podcast that's going to be incredibly different than anything else we've done so far in the show. Uh, I was asked a couple months ago, well, actually it was earlier this month, to um, go to one of my local colleges, Bowling Green State University in, in here, the great state of Ohio, and give a little presentation on the four temperaments to a small group of college students there. And um, because of everything that's going on right now with the spread of the uh, coronavirus and the stay-at-home orders and, and the shutting down of everything, of course, this event didn't happen. And so this group of college students had asked if I might record an audio of the class that I was preparing to share with them that evening. And I did that and shared that with them last week and thought, you know what, this might be something good for us to share on this podcast as well. Um, the, the four temperaments, uh, as, as probably some of you are aware of, is a part of our initial formation, um, at least with some of the Covenant of Love groups. I, I understand that not everybody uses it as part of their formation, um, but for some of us, it's something that we've had in our formation. And you'll kind of get into that as as I as the class as this podcast unfolds. So I'm not going to bore you with the details of it here, um, but essentially it's it's something that um, even our founder Father Kentenick was. Um, certainly not opposed to. And it's even thought that perhaps it was something that he would have studied with the with the boys in the initial formation, and that this was something that was essential to the development of the person and us knowing who we are and understanding who God created us to be. And so it's been part of this movement from the very beginning, at least from what I understand of the history of, of the movement. And so it is fitting that we share it on this podcast. But if you're looking at the the time of this, you'll notice that this is uh, normally these podcasts are just around 20 minutes, and this is much longer than that. Um, and so if you were hoping to tune in today and just casually listen um, as you're going about your day, I, I might recommend that you hit the pause on that and, and reconsider how you're going to approach this one. This is going to be more of a class than it is just, you know, some some thoughts and insights and things to think about as you're going about your day. And also with this class, um, there are handouts that typically go with it. And so if you actually want to sit down and take it as a class, maybe with yourself, or it'd be, it'd be good to do with your family, with a spouse, with your children, um, even, even younger children, um, you know, teenage or, or possibly even 10, 10 year olds and maybe above. I mean, it depends, I guess, on the intelligent level. Um, but you can do this with your children at home. So if you want to do this as a class and you want the handouts in front of you, just go to my website and shoot me an email, um, theworldisnoisy.com, or you can find me on Facebook at Julia Monin Author. And um, you can send me a message through Facebook and I will email you the handouts that I typically use for this class. So you'll have those in front of you and then you can click play and you can come back to this and you can actually take the class um, as you would as we were doing it in person. And then, of course, keep in mind that this is something that I do for Shunstock groups, but it's a class I teach not only in religious settings or for Shunstock groups, but I've taught it in secular settings as well. It can be done easily. Um, you'll see here that there's a lot of our Catholic faith tied into the class that I was going to present to this group of college students because that's what they asked for. 
Um, but if this was done in a secular setting, you know, you take you take that aspect out. So I can I can teach it. And if it's something you would like me to come in and teach for you or your group or even in your work setting or your secular setting, or I've taught it for high school psychology classes, whatever it might be, I'm available for that. So you can reach out to me about that as well. So that is what we're going to be sharing with you on the podcast. I am going to send you now to the uh, presentation about the four temperaments. Enjoy. I'm going to open with scripture. This is from 1 Corinthians 12. Now concerning spiritual gifts, brothers and sisters, I do not want you to be uninformed. You know that when you were pagans, you were enticed and led astray to idols that could not speak. Therefore, I want you to understand that no one is speaking by the Spirit of God ever says, let Jesus be cursed. And no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. Now there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are variety, varieties of services, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who activates all of them in every one. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. To one is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom, and to another the utterance of knowledge according to the same Spirit. To another, faith by the same Spirit, to another, gifts of healing by the one Spirit, to another, the working of miracles, to another, prophecy, to another, the discernment of spirits, to another, various kinds of tongues, to another, the interpretation of tongues. All these are activated by one and the same Spirit, who allots to each one individually, just as the Spirit chooses. So there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. And so it is with the teaching of what's, what's known as the four temperaments, that each of us are uniquely our own person and yet created by one creator for some specific reason, for some specific purpose, for some specific mission that ties into our personality and our temperament. So while we're talking about that, what is, a, what is meant by a temperament? A temperament is an aspect of your total personality. It's the aspect of your personality that's related to your reactions, your behaviors, primarily just what instinctively you would do to a situation. So let me give you an example. We could, we could have four different people in the room, each of the four different temperaments, and we could have the same situation um, given to each of these four different people, each having dominance in a different temperament. And their reaction, or at least their instinctual reaction, their habitual reaction, would be completely different. In my own life, this happened very recently to my husband and I. We we read um, the same email that w- that was posed to us that was the exact same words on the page that we read, but I had a response to it that was completely different than his response to it, which perfectly talked about the differences in our temperament. And we'll we'll get into this later about what those differences are and how that actually works. But this is this is what is meant by a temperament. It's an aspect of your total personality. The aspect that's related to your behavior or, or your reactions. And now let's back up just a little bit because it's always good to start with the why. Why is it important for us to study this topic of the four temperaments? Well, for one, we can look back at the history of the church and all of the great spiritual masters and all the great saints who came before us who often are quoted as saying that we need to know ourselves, that it is in knowing ourselves that we come to better know God, right? That when we understand who we truly are and who God created us to be, that that helps us better understand him, our creator. And not only does it help us better understand 
understand ourselves, it also helps us better understand our brothers and our sisters, these people that we are in the world with, the people that we are, we are quote unquote, doing life with, right? It makes us more empathetic to, to them, to their re- reactions, to their responses to things. It makes us a more loving person when we can see through their eyes certain situations. And so not only does it make us more empathetic to ourselves and to our responses to things, but also to our common man which is always a good thing. And in addition to that, it helps us know our our Father, our Father in Heaven and our Creator who created us all. So why? So knowledge of God, we come, come to know knowledge of God through knowledge of ourselves, right? Okay, and um, just a brief overview of the four temperaments before we actually dive into each of the four ones and talk about some of the, the descriptions of them. First of all, temperaments are something we're born with. Okay, so they can't be changed. There's something that's in us from the very beginning of our creation. There are tendencies and inclinations to behavior. They're sort of like um, natural instincts or our natural response in certain situations. But that doesn't mean they're excuses for bad behavior. And that's one of the reasons why we, we t- we're talking about this today and why it's important that we study the temperaments, at least even if it's really briefly as an overview because it helps us, it empowers us to make better decisions. You see, a lot of us just run on autopilot. We just run on autopilot. This is the way I've always responded. This is the way I'm wired to respond. And so, you know what, if I'm rolling you over the process, then that's just too bad for you. And so we need to kind of learn and teach ourselves to turn that autopilot off in a sense, in in some way. And now don't get me wrong, all of these temperaments come with strengths and come with weaknesses. So when our strengths are shining through, all is good and well with with the world. But when our weaknesses begin to overpower that, then then we need to turn that autopilot off. We need to take a step back and we need to um, remind ourselves that we do have the power to choose how we respond, that we don't have to operate on this autopilot that sometimes we, we, because we have blinders on, are just naturally operating on. So we're born with the temperaments, their tendencies and inclinations to react, but they're not excuses for bad behavior. We can certainly um, mold and shape our temperaments. We can't change them, but we can and should mold and shape them. And that's, again, one of the reasons why we are studying this today. They're given to you, your your particular temperament is given to you for um, some particular reason. I already kind of touched on this briefly. It ties into your mission, the mission that God has given you for right now at this time in the world. You know, you weren't born 100 years ago. You weren't born 100 years later. Like you are here right now in this world, the age that you are, the the city that you're living in, surrounded by the people you're surrounded with for some particular reason. God has created you for some bigger purpose, right? And so for his greater purpose, for his greater glory. And so your temperament ties very uniquely into that mission. All four of the temperaments are equal. There's not one temperament that's better than another, not one that's worse than another. Um, All, like I already said, come with strengths, all come with weaknesses, and they are all very important keys in in God's creation and God's design. And so not one is better than another one. And also the study of the four temperaments, just a little overview, a note, they're not a reason to label ourselves or others. Okay. Typically, we are a blend of temperaments. Like there's, we we are what's called a temperament blend. Typically, we are a blend of two different temperaments. Um, and you know, God kind of balances us out. But it's not a reason for us to label ourselves, or not a reason for us to label other people. So let me give you an example. The first temperament we're going to talk about is one that starts with a C. It's pronounced choleric or choleric. And this this particular temperament is a very powerful temperament. Okay, these people are have powerful personalities and 
strengths and one of their strengths is just being a being a leader but then one of their weaknesses is really just being domineering and pushy and bossy and so you yourself might be a choleric and you just might label yourself yep I'm a boss it's just the way God made me and so that's just the way it's going to be I'm just going to boss people around the rest of my life take it or leave it Or you could label, let's say you work with somebody who is of this temperament and you could totally use this as an excuse to label them. Like this person will never be kind. This person will never be gentle. This person will never be, you know, generous with with their time. They're like, they're just, they're always just pushing people around. Understanding the temperaments isn't an excuse to label people. So be warned of that and be careful not to do that. Remember, temperaments are our tendencies to react. There are tendencies to react. There are inclinations, our natural inclinations towards a specific behavior, but they're not an excuse for bad behavior. We are going to learn them today. We're going to understand them a little bit today in the hopes that we, that the Lord in his grace and in his goodness and in his mercy will mold and shape them so that we can be more and more of the person that he's created us to be. Okay. So now a question to you. The question reads, it's a multiple choice question, okay? Sirens begin to whirl behind you and you realize that a police car is pulling you over. You think, there are four possible answers to this question. I'm going to read them all. You think his radar gun couldn't possibly be correct. I was hardly going over the speed limit. The cars in front of me were speeding. Or you think, oh no, I've heard of people getting arrested for this. Or maybe you think, was I driving too fast? What's the speed limit on this road anyway? Or the last possible response, do I have my wallet and where did I put that car registration? So I want you to think about that for a little bit. I'll read it one more time and go through those answers one more time. And I want you to jot down on a piece of paper just right now, which of these responses you think is most relatable to you and how you would respond to this situation. So again, sirens begin to whirl behind you and you realize that a police car is pulling you over. You think his radar gun couldn't possibly be correct. I was hardly going over the speed limit. The cars in front of me were speeding. You think, oh no, I've heard of people getting arrested for this. You think, was I driving too fast? What's the speed limit on this road anyway? Or you think, do I have my wallet and where did I put that car registration? Now that question actually comes from the book, The Temperament God Gave You, which is written by Art and Lorraine Bennett, B-E-N-N-E-T-T. If, as we're going on the, the show today, if this is a topic that really interests you, I would like to recommend that you start with um, some of the books by Art and Lorraine Bennett. Um, To my knowledge, there are three of them. The Temperament God Gave You, The Temperament God Gave Your Spouse, and The Temperament God Gave Your Children. Not only do they give great descriptions on the temperaments and how they play out in our lives, um, but they also tie it beautifully into Catholic spirituality, which I which is just an added bonus. So, um, so I highly recommend that you look up their books and that you might, if you if this is a topic that interests you and you want to study it further, that you might give them a read. But that's where that question came from. And if I don't forget, we are going to come back to that question at the very end of class. Okay, so you've jotted down your answer. You know what you think you are or what how you think you might respond to that right now. And now we're going to go on. We're going to spend the first part of this class just giving a brief overview of the four different temperaments, okay? The four different categories. First, as already said, is one that starts with a C. It's spelled C-H-O-L-E-R-I-C. Oh, you know what I forgot to mention? Um, When I teach this class in person, there are always handouts that come that, you know, we go over. We have handouts that we're looking at as we go through the class. It was, it'll probably be pretty helpful to you if you have those handouts in front of you. I'm not saying you have to have them in front of you, um, but it would probably be helpful if they were. 
So if you're interested in having those handouts and you don't have them in front of you right now, um, you can go to my website, theworldisnoisy.com, and you can shoot me an email. You can contact me through that website, and I will email you the handouts I use for this class, which give all of these descriptions I'm about to go over with you, have them in writing. So if you want a copy of that, and you want to even come back to this at a later time when you have the handouts in front of you, then I would encourage that. Otherwise, we're continuing, okay? So this is coming from the handout. So the first one is, again, the C word, choleric, C-H-O-L-E-R-I-C. Each of these four temperaments is going to come with a P word, a P word that will help you remember, um, just give you an overall view and help you remember the the um, the aspect of this this type of personality, this type of temperament. So the P word that goes with choleric is powerful, powerful. Their motto, let's do it my way now. And here's two key words in that motto. Let's do it my way now. First, my, okay, clerics have to watch out for like their 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 pride showing itself in the form of their self-will, right? My way is the best way. My way is the only way. So that's a key word in this motto. And then now, clerics are not typically procrastinators. Clerics like to get things done. They like to get things done now. And they might often be the people that are saying, why would I wait to do this tomorrow when it can totally be done today? So they like to put things on lists. They like to check things off their list. And they're constantly working. By the way, each of these four temperaments also is going to be energized by something, something that energizes them. And the choleric is energized by work work, okay? Work energizes them. And so if you think about that, that work is what energizes the cleric, then it's not surprising that they're always working, right? That they're always putting something on their list, that they always like to cross it off, that they're always going to the next thing because that's what energizes them. Okay, so cleric's P word is powerful. Their motto, let's do it my way now. And they are energized by work. They are doers. Their favorite verse, scripture passage of a cleric might very well be, let all things be done decently and in order, which comes from 1 Corinthians 14, 40. Let all things be done decently and in order. Yes, clerics like things done in order. They like things done well. They like things done right. They like things done with precision. They like things done, right? Just primarily, and this is kind of a joke, but they like things done the way they like things done, okay? Because their way is always the right way. Okay, and why we're on this note, let me just offer another little sidebar here. So when I'm teaching you these four temperaments, what I've learned about them over the years, I'm teaching them to you in extremes. Why? Well, because it's easier for us to understand them that way. It's easier for us to make it practical in our own lives, to actually take something away from from the class today and, and apply it to your own life. When I talk extremes, it's easier for us to understand. But most of us aren't this extreme. Like I already mentioned, typically we are a temperament blend, right? We're a blend of the two temperaments or of usually two temperaments. And so we're not this extreme, but when I'm teaching, I'm teaching in extremes. Okay. So keep that in mind as we go forward. Okay. The desire of a cleric is to have control. Their key strengths, their strong will, determined, time efficient, forceful, decisive, and confident. Yes, clerics exude confidence. You don't normally have to tell a cleric that they're doing a good job because they kind of already assume that they're doing a good job or they know that they're doing a good job. They exude confidence. Their key weaknesses, they are impatient, domineering, bossy. They can be insensitive. They're unwilling to delegate. Let's think about that one for a second. Why would a choleric be unwilling to delegate? Based on what you know already about this particular temperament, why would they be unwilling to delegate? 
quite simply because their way is always the right way, right? And so no one is going to do a job as good as I'm going to do a job. No one's going to do it better than me. And so it's very difficult for a cleric to, to delegate. It's something that a cleric has to teach themselves, has to train themselves. It's not something natural that they will want to do that because they'll want to do it themselves because they're the only ones that can do it right. Okay, again, I'm talking in extremes. So be sensitive and gentle if you yourself are a cleric or if you know somebody that's a cleric. Excuse me, but um, anyway, that's why it's so difficult for a cleric to delegate. Okay, clerics get depressed when life is out of control and when others don't want to do things their way. They like people who are supportive and submissive and see things their way. Again, clerics often think their way is the right way. And so not surprisingly, they like when people are submissive to that and agree with them. They dislike people who are not motivated or who are not interested in working hard. Clerics are workers, they're doers, they're energized by work, they're always working. And because they're energized by work, it's like they, they work tirelessly almost. And so, um, yeah, that becomes kind of an annoyance to them with people who, who aren't quite as hard of workers as what they themselves are. They're valuable in work because they are efficient, timely, and reliable. I often say if you want something done, you give it to them. Um, and you've heard that expression, if you want something done, give it to a busy person. Well, those people are naturally cholerics. Like they just know how to get stuff done. They know how to get, and you can just keep adding to their list and they just magically find ways to get it all done. I'm not saying they get it all done virtuously, <laughs> um, but they find ways to get it all done. Okay, they could improve if they allowed others to make decisions if they delegated or were more patient, okay, yeah, learning learning that skill of delegating, learning patience, allowing other people to make decisions, these are big ways to grow in virtue for a cleric, big necessary ways to grow in virtue for a cleric, to uproot some of the vices of, of being impatient and domineering and, by, and um, bossy, is that that's how you uproot that, you practice the opposite virtue, so you let other people make decisions, you delegate, you learn to be more patient and more and more um, gentle, okay? As a leader, they have a natural feel for being in charge, a quick sense of what will work. Yeah, um, clerics are natural born leaders. Um, they'll have a difficult time following. They'll, they'll want to lead. And again, if we're talking about growing in virtue and uprooting vice, um, you know, the best leaders are, are the best leaders because they know how to follow, okay? Leader, the best leaders are the best leaders because they know how to follow. And so a choleric, it would be good for a choleric. They, they naturally know how to lead and want to lead and have a desire to lead, but it would be very beneficial for them and for the growth of their soul if they at first learned how to follow, right? It's a very powerful tool. They tend to marry phlegmatics, which is going to be the next of the four temperaments that we talk about, which is quite... Um, um, just the opposite of the cleric that we're talking to now. But phlegmatics welcome their authority and usually agree with them. You'll understand what I mean by that when we start talking about the phlegma phlegmatic temperament here in a second. They react to stress by working harder, by tightening control. Yeah, when a cleric gets um, stressed out, their reaction is to work harder. Remember, clerics are energized by doing, by working. And so when they get stressed out, then they just want to work even harder than what they already are, Okay. Um, they are recognized by their fast-moving approach, their quick grab for control, 
and their self-confidence. And they're best suited for jobs as entrepreneurs, politicians, leaders, teachers, doctors, and researchers. Yes, a lot of our politicians are not surprisingly clerics. You know, um, to be a politician in the world, obviously you're not going to make everybody happy. You're in a position of authority where no matter what you do, you're going to have people upset at you. So naturally people who are drawn to that as a vocation, as a career, as a mission, you know, a God-given mission, it's somebody who's going to have kind of a strong backbone, so to speak. And that would be talking about our cholerics. Um, So yes, so a lot of our, not all of them, but a lot of our politicians are cholerics. In the book, I already mentioned The Temperament God Gave You by Art and Lorraine Bennett. They also give us some examples of saints in the church who were um, clerics who were known as clerics. So a few saints that I have written down are St. Ignatius, St. Augustine, St. John Paul II, St. Paul. Yeah, you can think about the example of St. Paul and his story of conversion. You know, he was so confident that and, and so pious about his Jewish faith that he thought for sure he was serving God by p- persecuting the Christians, right? And he was just so adamant about that. And then the Lord converts him, knocks him off his horse, literally converts him, changes his heart, and refocuses him on the right mission, right? And then again, he couldn't be stopped with that right mission. And that's the thing with the cleric. When you are able to mold the cleric's mind and focus their minds and their hearts on Christ and on serving Christ, you won't be able to stop them. You absolutely will not be able to stop them. They are bold, fearless people who will do what they're told to do with this um, with this resolute determination, as St. Teresa of Avila is quoted as saying, they have determined determination. St. Teresa might very well have also been a cleric. She reforms the Carmelite order during the time of the Reformation, so just a very bold person in in and of herself. But she writes about that, that we need to have a determined determination, and that is the cleric, right? They are determined people, and once their minds, their hearts, their souls, are, and their gaze is directed towards the right purposes— they're unstoppable. Okay, seriously. And so we see that a lot in the history of our church and the history of our great saints. Okay, makes sense so far? Okay, very good. All right, well, we're going to move on to the next one. The next one, which is going to be kind of like the um, direct opposite of what we just talked about with the cleric. The next one starts with a P. It's spelled P-H-L-E-G-M-A-T-I-C. It's pronounced phlegmatic. So the phlegmatic temperament, their P word is peaceful. Their P word is peaceful. Yes. Their favorite verse, not surprisingly, Matthew 5, 9, blessed are the peacemakers for they will be called the sons of God. They are energized, whereas the clerics are energized by doing, the phlegmatics are energized by watching. And I, I myself am a cleric. Okay. Um, and so when I hear, when I I'm learning this and I'm, it's just like, it's so backwards to me, like to be energized by watching. I don't even know how that's possible, but I believe it because I know we're all, you know, no two of us are created alike. Um, so anyway, just completely opposite of my, my dominant temperament. So phlegmatics energized by watching their P word is peaceful. Favorite verse, blessed are the peacemakers for they will be called the sons of God and their motto, let's do it the easy way. Let's do it the easy way. So whereas our clerics were the people who were like go-getters, can't be stopped, aren't procrastinators, why would I wait till tomorrow when I can do this today? Your phlegmatics are like, why in the world would I would do what why in the world would I do this today? 
when I can just wait to do it tomorrow. So yes, that is often a vice of the phlegmatic is procrastination. Okay, so let's go into a list of their qualities. The desire of the phlegmatic is to have no conflict, to keep the peace, to keep the peace. Phlegmatics absolutely abhor conflict. They can't stand it. They don't like to be around it. Even like a perceived conflict that really isn't a conflict. Like it's it's not even a conflict, but like they're perceiving it might become a conflict or it might lead to a conflict. They're just, they're, they are the people pleasers, like the, the personality or the temperament that is, is um, yeah, by default, just a people pleaser. So they just want to keep everybody happy and they, they want to avoid conflict at all costs. Their key strengths are their balance, their even disposition. They have dry sense of humors and they have incredibly pleasing personalities, or phlegmatics are the easiest of the four temperaments to get along with, right? Just totally calm, peaceful, easy, easy people to get along with. Their key weaknesses, their lack of decisiveness and enthusiasm. And like I already mentioned, they do tend to be procrastinators. So yeah, they have a very difficult time making decisions. Let's think about that. Let's do a little critical thinking and think about that. Why would that be with a phlegmatic? Knowing what you already know about what I just told you about them being peaceful, wanting to avoid conflict. It makes sense, doesn't it? They have a difficult time making decisions because they don't want to upset anybody. And so because they don't want to upset anybody, you see, if they make the decision, then there's always that risk that someone will be upset with the decision they make. And this can be something as simple as like picking the restaurant of where you're going to go out to eat as a family, or you're in a group of friends and somebody says, hey, you pick this time. And this person will just be like, no, 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 no. I want nothing to do with that. Like you just go ahead and pick because even something like that, you don't want to upset someone. Okay. So again, key weaknesses, lack of decisiveness, lack of enthusiasm, and they do tend to be procrastinators. They get depressed when life is full of conflict, when they have to face a personal confrontation, and when no one wants to help. And by the way, speaking of that, they might have a difficult time asking people to help. So that, that is a frustration to them when no one wants to help, when there's a lot of conflict in life, but they also aren't typically people who are going to go out and just ask people for help, okay? Um, like people, they like people who will make decisions for them and who will recognize their strengths. And can I just say that's laughable if you're a cleric, because one of, if, if you want to really upset a cleric, like, and by the way, clerics are already passionate people who are prone to anger. So it doesn't always take a lot to upset a cleric, but if you really want to push buttons of a cleric, make decisions for them, like tell them what to do. Just tell them what to do because a cleric need, like has this sense of, of wanting to be in control and wanting to make the decisions. And so when somebody else makes decisions for them, it's, it's appalling to a cleric. But a phlegmatic loves it because like I already said, a phlegmatic isn't great at making decisions and really hates to make decisions. So if somebody else just makes this decision for me, that's all the better. Okay. It's almost like a peaceful thing for them that when somebody else makes decisions for them. Okay, so they like people who do that, who make decisions, and who recognize their strengths. They dislike people who are too pushy, too loud, and expect too much of them. They are valuable in work because they cooperate and keep the peace, and they objectively solve problems. They could improve if they set goals and became self-motivated. 
and if they could face their own problems as well as they handle other people's. Um, yeah, for a for a phlegmatic, because a phlegmatic has a tendency to procrastinate and their motto is, you know, let's do it the easy way, you know, we don't want to work too hard, it might be especially important if you're trying to uproot that vice of procrastination to set goals, to have a goal sheet, to have dates set on when, when projects need to be done, and then to hold yourself to that and maybe even have an accountability partner who's holding yourself to that. A choleric, on the other hand, um, Honestly, a choleric it can become obsessed with that, can become obsessed. Like if they have goals and plans and, and all of these things written on a, on a nice, neat, orderly plan, and then they don't hit that goal for some reason, and maybe it's not God's will that they do. You know, God's timing is always perfect, but that will really, really mess with a choleric psyche. So it's not as important for a choleric to keep goals. I mean, I could catch a lot of slack for that because like all the business leaders in our world today would tell you, you got to write your goals down. You got to have them clear. You got to have dates to them. And there is genius in that, especially for someone who's a phlegmatic. But a cleric is naturally a doer, is naturally going to get things done. A goal sheet to a cleric should be more so like like a target, like something that helps you keep yourself organized and keep your priorities straight so that other things don't fill in when really this is what you set out to do. But uh, whereas a phlegmatic who has a goal sheet is really like the deadlines are going to be most important because they're going to want to just naturally keep procrastinating and putting things off. Um, as a leader, a phlegmatic keeps calm, cool, and collected. They don't make impulsive decisions. They're well-liked and inoffensive, and they don't typically cause trouble. Like I already said, they're the easiest people to get along with, and they make great leaders for all of these reasons I just said, because they keep calm, cool, and collective, because they don't make impulsive decisions, because they're well-liked and inoffensive, and they don't cause trouble. They make wonderful leaders, but they will not want to lead. Okay, a choleric, you're going to have a difficult time not leading. They're going to, to always want to lead, even when you don't want them to lead. Um, but a phlegmatic is the opposite of that. They're not going to want to lead. You have to really encourage them. You have to really build them up. You have to really support them and, and let them know that they will make a great leader. Um, with that in mind, phlegmatics are, are introverted of these two temperaments and our cholerics are, are, are extroverted of the two temperaments. Phlegmatics tend to marry cholerics because of their strengths and decisiveness. So here's the thing about who we tend to marry. You see, my strengths as a choleric are my husband, who's a phlegmatic, are his weaknesses and vice versa. His strengths of a phlegmatic are my weaknesses of a choleric. And so naturally you're drawn to each other, right? Because together right? Together, there's something there and something beautiful that doesn't exist on its own. But if you're not careful, and if you don't understand that, that you're drawn to each other because, because essentially you balance each other out and you, and your strengths and your weaknesses balance each other out, um, then you'll just annoy each other. Because, you know, if my husband gets stressed out, his reaction to that is like, here, let's just get to that. Their reaction to stress from a phlegmatic is they hide from it, they watch television, they tune life out, they sleep. So if he's had a stressful day and he comes home and he just wants to tune out and, you know, watch a television show for 30 minutes or a half hour to like reset his mind, and I look at that and say, well, why, are, why don't we just work harder? And so you can see as the first several years of our marriage was us learning this about each other, we're like, I just wanted to work harder and like make the problem and fix the problem. And he just wanted to like take a step back and, and, you know, chill out and tune out for a little bit. And it was after we studied these temperaments in ourselves that it really helped us in our marriage to recognize, oh yeah, he totally needs that. You know, he needs that downtime. 
Whereas there are times that I need extra time to work, you know, that that is what energizes me. Okay, phlegmatics are recognized by their calm and agreeable approach and by their easygoing nature. And they're best suited for jobs in counseling, personnel, education, military, and administration. I always like to point out military. Why would a phlegmatic be suitable for a job in the military? And of course, this would be like your... um, you know, your soldiers in the military, because they just are taking orders, right? And they're, they're, yes, sir, yes, ma'am, yes, sir, yes, ma'am. And so it's just, they're following out the command that's given them. And so that could be a job that's suited for them well. Um, A saint who is a phlegmatic, again, this is as recorded in the book, The Temperament God Gave Me, St. Thomas Aquinas. Okay. Great mind of our church, probably one of the greatest minds in all of the church that, that has ever come forth, to be honest with you. Um, but he's recognized as this phlegmatic, right? This easygoing, go with the flow, very difficult to ruffle their feathers, energized by watching. Okay, so those are the two that we've discussed so far. We have two more that we'll go over. And then um, after we go over these next two, we'll spend a little bit of time talking specifically about strengths and weaknesses. Okay, so moving on. The next one on our list is the one that begins with the letter S. It's pronounced sanguine. At least that's how I pronounce it. And it's spelled S-A-N-G-U-I-N-E. Sanguine's P word is popular. Sanguines have magnetic personalities. People are drawn to them. Not surprisingly, with that being said, sigmatic or sanguines like our cholerics are typically our extroverts, right? And sanguines are energized by what? Okay, let's do a quick refresher just to make sure this is sinking in. Our clerics were energized by, do you remember what were our clerics energized by? Our clerics were energized by working. Our phlegmatics were energized by watching. And our sanguines are energized by people, by talking. Okay, sanguines are our talkers. They love to be around people. Um, they, They love to talk. They're the popular people. They're fun. They're definitely people people, right? They're the people, they're the people people. That's fun to say. Um, Their motto, let's do it the fun way, which... (laughs) 
that that's funny that I just said that and created that fun. So we I talked about how typically we're a blend of temperaments, right? That we have two different ones that kind of balance each other out. So this happens to just be my second one, okay? So this choleric sanguine is what I am. So um, anyway, the fact that I just said that that was fun to say people, people um, kind of just shed some light on that, didn't it? So their motto, let's do it the fun way. Their favorite verse, a cheerful heart is good medicine. And that's from Proverbs 17, 22. The desire of a sanguine is to have fun at all costs. Sanguine at the top of the sanguine's list is always to have a good time, to have fun. Their key strengths, bubbly personalities, they're optimistic, they're fun-loving, they're outgoing. And yeah, they tell great stories. I mean, like I already said, they do have these magnetic personalities. People are just drawn to them. Um, They are the social butterflies, could talk to anybody at any time about anything. Their key weaknesses, they're restless, disorganized, not good with money, and can't remember details. Okay, so let's think about this critical thinking moment here. Why would a sanguine, knowing what you know when I just told you about them, why would a sanguine not be good with money, right? It is fun to spend money. Like there's, there's, um, you know, studies that have been done about the endorphins that are released with that. Like, oh, there's a sale and oh, I just saved money and oh, I just did that. And it's like, it's fun. And so a, a sanguine, if they're not careful, is not really responsible with money. They're not good at saving, right? A sanguine isn't good at like thinking about long-term consequences. So if it's fun right now and I'm having a good time right now, then I'm not worried about the consequences of that. And you can see how related to um, like a life of sin, how that could create a major problem, right? And we'll talk about that more in this, in the, in the second half of class today. Okay, they get depressed when life is no fun and when no one seems to love them. Mm. Yeah, but I, I joke. I say that in a joking way, but it's very true. They do like to have fun. This is how they're wired. And so when um, the attention is off of them, and no one seems to love them, then that creates a major point of um, of dismay for them in, in the deepest part of them. They like people who listen and laugh, who praise and approve them. Okay, not surprisingly. They dislike people who criticize, who don't respond to their humor. And here's my favorite, who don't think they're cute. Aw, you see a sanguine thinks they're like the cutest people in the whole, whole wide world and you don't think I'm cute? Like, what's wrong with you, right? Okay, so they're valuable in work for their colorful creativity, for their optimism, for their light touch, and for their cheering up of others. Yeah, I mean, this world would just be an incredibly boring place without our sanguines. Our sanguines keep things light and cheerful, and we, we totally need that. We totally need that. Um, they could improve if they got organized, if they didn't talk so much, and if they could manage money. And here's the good news about all of that. Those are all skills that you can learn. It may not come natural to you if you're a sanguine. And like I said, remember these temperaments are tendencies to react. They're inclinations towards certain behaviors. So being highly organized, knowing when to stop talking, managing money well, that will not come naturally to a sanguine, but you can learn it. And my life is proof of that. Because as a sanguine, all of these things are totally true. Now, I will say not the organized one because I'm a cleric, so I'm highly organized and always have been. But, you know, we can learn when to stop talking. And the Lord and his grace and his mercy has shown me and is continuing to show me that, that it's as important to know what to say as it is to know when to stop talking. 
Okay. And so we can learn that, that virtue. We can learn that behavior. And then learning how to manage money, absolutely. You can totally learn how to do that. But by the grace of God and with people who know how to do it and people who can educate you, you can learn how to be responsible with the gifts that you have been given by God and to spend money wisely and to use them for his greater good. As a leader, sanguines excite persuade and inspire others they exude charm and entertain yeah they make fun exciting leaders um yeah i mean it's just that's just a natural statement <laughs> you can see that for yourself they tend to marry melancholics which is going to be the last one we talk about melancholics who are very sensitive and very serious people okay so again kind of the opposite of the sanguine their reaction to stress leave the scene go shopping find a fun group deny reality. Okay, so situation just got stressful for a sanguine and the sanguine says, I don't want to go there. Let's just have fun. Okay, so they they will deny what's happening and go find something fun to do. They are recognized by their constant talking, their bright eyes, their colorful clothes, and their magnetic personalities. And they're best suited for jobs in teaching, acting, sales, lecturing, radio, television. Okay, I am literally right now and this has been going on for 30 minutes now, me talking to you. I'm literally staring at my computer screen and talking to my computer screen. You, you recognize that, right? So this would be a strength or an ability or a natural inclination of a sanguine that you can literally talk to the wall, which I'm proving to you right now as I'm recording this, that I'm literally talking to the wall. Um, and you know what? Can I just say I'm having a ton of fun doing it, okay? So this just shows you this is that aspect of the sanguine in me. All right. Saints who were sanguines, um, St. Francis, you know, St. Francis of Assisi, you know, before he became the St. Francis we know, whose, whose temper was molded and shaped into this life of service and deep poverty, was really just a partier and loved to be out on the scene, loved to be a partier, loved to spend his dad's money, loved to, you know, go to the pubs and do all of these fun things. And that was totally the life that he was living. So quite naturally, he he was a sanguine or, yeah, was a sanguine. Um, St. Peter, St. Peter, and on the surface, you might not think that St. Peter was a sanguine, um, but St. Peter showed us things in the gospel and the things that we have recorded about him or his that things were that were impulsive, his impulsive nature, which is typically a sanguine. Sanguines are typically pretty impulsive people. If it's fun, let's stay here. Perfect example of this would be the story of the transfiguration. So Peter, James, and John, I believe, are gone up to the mountain, right, with the Lord Jesus. The Lord is transfigured before them. And what is Peter's response to all this? You can pull it out and look it up and, and read the Bible. Peter's response to Jesus is, it is good that we are here. Let's build three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. Basically, Peter is saying, it's really great up here. I'm having a ton of fun. Let's not go back down. Let's not go back down the mountain where things are so serious, right? And so that's just one example of, of perhaps the gospel shedding light on this aspect of St. Peter's personality, of this aspect of his temperament. Okay, so sanguines, again, their P word is popular. They are energized by people and their favorite verse, a cheerful heart is good medicine. Okay, and this brings us to our last of the four temperaments. Last of the four temperaments is the one that begins with the letter M, and it's pronounced melancholic. Melancholic's motto is, let's do it the right way. Their P word, not surprisingly, based on what I just told you, their motto is, is perfect. Melancholies are perfectionists. With the world around them, yes, but in a very particular way with themselves. And we'll talk about that more in a second here. They are energized 
by ideas. Again, let's do a quick recap. Clerics are energized by work, doing. Phlegmatics are energized by watching. Sanguines are energized by talking, by being around people. And melancholies are energized by ideas. Melancholies live in their heads. They are quite naturally perhaps the most introverted of all of the four temperaments. And and yes, they are thinkers, planners, perfectionists, okay? Their favorite verse, be ye perfect, therefore, as your father is perfect. And that again is from Matthew 5, 48. Their desire to have it right, to make it perfect. Their key strengths, their ability to organize, set long-range goals, and they have high standards. Yes, their standards are incredibly high. Truth, morals, ideals. Here's the thing with with melancholy. So they do have these high ideals of perfection. Um, And what does that mean? That means, especially for a melancholy, we have to understand that this world is not our permanent home, right? We're made for more. We're made for eternal life with God the Father in heaven, this, this this place that is perfect. And so this world for each and every one of us is an exile in a sense but especially to a melancholy because they have these high ideals these high these high morals about perfection and so they're they are the people that are always just like well it, it ought to be this way it ought to be this way why isn't it this way it ought to be this way and so this world is an, is an especially especially great exile for them um, because their hearts and their minds are already wanting and longing for the state of perfection their key weaknesses they are easily depressed they are too focused on details and they have and they remember the negatives. Yeah, here's the thing. Um, again, with all of us, each and every person, no matter your temperament, no matter your blend, no matter your upbringing, each and every one of us, it's incredibly difficult to forgive. One of the hardest things that the Lord commands of us is that, and it's repeated in scripture over and over again, you know, forgive others as I have forgiven you. Forgive not seven times, but 77 times. Um, it's just, it's not an option. Even in the Our Father, we pray that every time we pray the Our Father, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who have trespassed against us. It's this command that is coming from our Lord because this is how we we grow in our relationship with him is when we're able to forgive those who have wronged us, whether it's justly or unjustly. But especially for a melancholy, because a melancholy lives in their mind, and because a melancholy has such a deep mind and a deep thinking, that it's especially difficult for them to let things go, to forgive, to move on. They are, the, they are like the elephants of the group. They never forget, and they remember the negatives, and it's really easy for them because of that to hold grudges and to hold, hold things over people's heads, um, you know, past mistakes or whatever. So especially if you're a melancholy, you need to watch out for this. Um, this, this is going to be an, exp- an especially big cross for you to let things go. But nothing is impossible with God, okay? And so we invite God into this great task of forgiving, of letting things go, of removing these grudges, of loving our neighbors the way that he loves us. And we take this to prayer and we strengthen ourselves with the sacraments that the church gives us. And in, through, and by God's grace, we're shown how to let go, how to forgive, like Christ our Savior forgave. Okay. They get depressed when life is out of order, when standards aren't met, and when no one seems to care. Well, and here's the thing about a melancholy. They have incredibly high standards, again, for themselves, but for others as well. And so most of the time, their standards aren't met. Okay. So so a lot of the time, they are feeling this heavy, like this heavy... um 
Bum, bum, bum. Which reminds me of, you know, the great story of Winnie the Pooh, Eeyore. Eeyore is our typical melancholy. Like everything's always wrong. Everything is woe is me. You know, this is typically our melancholy. And then while we're talking about that, let's talk about using that as an example, Winnie the Pooh as an example. I do have a two-year-old in my house, so watching Winnie the Pooh comes in handy for you today. Um, The other temperaments, how they're played out. Piglet, who like does whatever Pooh tells him to do, even when it's ridiculous and stupid and he shouldn't be doing it. Piglet is like our perfect example of a phlegmatic, okay? Um, Rabbit is our, you know, likes things done the way he does and he's always right. He is pretty typical choleric, right? That shows kind of the choleric side of things. Um, And then sanguine, who's the sanguine of that group? T-I double gu-er. I mean, without a doubt, Tigger. Tigger is the sanguine of the group, the fun, lovely one. It's all about having a party. It's all about having fun, right? Okay, so anyway, I digress. Let's get back to melancholy. Um, they like people who are serious, intellectual, deep, and will carry on sensible conversations. Essentially, they like other melancholies. They're such deep people that a lot of us aren't on their level of depth. And so they need other melancholies around them to like energize them and and to meet them at a level of, um, yeah, just, just a depth that most of us normally don't go to naturally. They dislike people who are forgetful, late, disorganized, superficial, unpredictable, which, by the way, perfectly describes a sanguine. Sanguines are often forgetful, late, disorganized, superficial, and unpredictable. But as we've already talked, melancholies and sanguines are often drawn to each other and do, in fact, tend to marry one another, again, like we talked before, because the strengths of a sanguine are the weaknesses of a melancholy and vice versa. Um, but you, if, if you don't recognize that that might annoy you, then your marriage might have a lot of um, a lot of tension that doesn't need to be there. And again, that's why one of the reasons why we study the temperaments, it not only helps us understand ourselves, it helps us understand the people we're doing life with as well. And it makes us more empathetic to our brothers and sisters and to their unique temperament and how they respond to things. A melancholy is valuable in work for their sense of details, their love of analysis, their follow-through, and their compassion. Yeah, I had one gentleman in the class one time who, (laughs) when I said like, um, oh, what was it I said? I don't even remember, but we were talking about melancholies and what melancholies enjoy, and he just blurred out spreadsheets. And he's like, I'm so serious. I love them. I love spreadsheets. I love to get into a spreadsheet. And yeah, that's totally a melancholy, this love of analysis of, you know, putting this here and that here and this here and that here. Often, you know, the engineering type of mindsets, um, that that's pretty typical melancholy. They could improve if they didn't take life quite so seriously and they didn't insist others be perfectionists. As a leader, they organize well, they're sensitive to people's feelings, and they have deep creativity. Here's the thing about um, melancholies and cholerics. Cholerics we already talked about are natural leaders. They'll want to lead. They'll want things done their way. Melancholies also like to lead. Okay, but they'll lead in different ways. Whereas with the choleric, because a cleric is so extroverted, because they process life outside of them, that's what they mean. So it's extroverted, it's outside of me. You will always know where you stand with a choleric because a cleric is always telling you how they feel, because that's how they process stuff outside of them. So if you've done something wrong on the project, a cleric will quite honestly let you know, hey, we took a wrong turn here. We need to correct this. A melancholy, because they're typically introverts, who they do like to lead and they like things to be perfect. So they'll want to be in that leadership role. 
but they'll have a more difficult time um, expressing how they're truly feeling. So you might be making mistakes on the projects and doing things imperfectly, and they might just be biting their tongue and like stirring with all of these negative emotions inside, like, why can't this person just do this the way that I want it done? But they will never say a word and you'll have no idea <laughs> until like finally something just explodes and they can't take it in anymore. So just a little side note of the differences you might notice between your cleric leader and your melancholy leader. Melancholies tend to marry sanguines for their personality and social skills. Oh, I have to tell you a funny story. So my husband and I went on a pilgrimage um, a few years ago. And at, at the end of every day after we were done seeing the sights and spending time in prayer and participating in the Holy Mass, we always gathered as a group and ate meals together. And this was a huge pilgrimage. There were hundreds of people there on this pilgrimage. And me being the social butterfly that I am, it didn't really bother me to sit at a table with a group of strangers to get to know everybody a little bit better, to share stories about faith and life. And, you know, it was all fine and dandy for me. But for my introverted husband, nothing could be worse. Like it was this worst part of the pilgrimage was having to eat together with a group of strangers that he knew nothing about, right? And so one of the meals we are dining and my husband's sitting at the head of the table. This was like a rectangle table. And I was sitting next to him and there was this woman sitting across from me. And this entire meal... This woman and I were just exchanging stories and having a conversation and back and forth and back and forth and back and forth. Just me and her, the, the whole hour or two that we were there dining. And my husband was just sitting at the edge of the table, just eating his meal, drinking his drink and just, you know, moving on and just sitting there. And after it was all said and done, when we got on the bus to go back to the hotel, I looked at him and I felt so bad that I had just dominated that entire conversation and didn't let him say a word. So in my head, I'm like, here I am again, you know, typical choleric Julia, like, I was just beating myself up about it, that I just totally steamrolled him and didn't take his feelings into consideration. And I apologized. And I said, you know, I'm really sorry I did that. Um, you know, I should have let you be part of the conversation. I totally talked that whole time without even inviting you into it. And he looked at me with this very serious face and said, are you kidding me? That was the best gift you could have ever given me. That was the best meal we've had so far since we've been here. Like he he totally loved it that that happened because that's not a strength of his. And after a long day of being out and you're physically tired to like to have the energy to go sit in front of a group of people and talk to strangers that you didn't know. It, anyway, it was just a gift to him. So that just goes to give you a perspective of this too. Same situation, but we had totally different reactions to it. Um, melancholies, right? their reaction to stress. They withdraw, they get lost in a book, become depressed, give up, go back to college. They're recognized by their serious and sensitive nature, their well-mannered approach, their meticulous and well-groomed looks. Remember, they're perfectionists, so often even in their in their appearance as well, like their hair has to be like a certain way and done a certain... So anyway, it can happen, okay? And they're best suited for jobs as surgeons, psychiatrists, professors, artists, musicians, accountants, engineers. Yeah, we talked about those last two. And surgeons, when I'm giving this this talk to a group of kids, I always, I always pose that question of, who would you rather have be your surgeon, knowing what you know? now about these natural inborn temperaments. Would you rather the melancholy be your surgeon or the sanguine? And of course, that normally gets a laugh. And everybody agrees that normally you would rather have the meticulous, perfectionist melancholy cutting you open than the fun, carefree, let's all about a good time sanguine. Now, that doesn't mean sanguines can't make great surgeons. They totally can. It's a joke. And again, we're talking in extremes um, to just help us understand what these four temperaments are. Okay, saints who might be melancholies. 
Um, St. Teresa Benedicta of the Cross, who's also St. Edith Stein, Edith Stein was her given name, and then when she converted to Catholicism, she took the name St. Teresa Benedicta of the Cross. Yes, a great saint who um, died with her Jewish people, her Jewish roots in World War II at the concentration camp. Um, St. Faustina, who's kind of a popular saint in our modern times. I don't know this for sure, and this wasn't listed in the book, but just by my own reading of her, I wonder if she might have been a melancholic, um, simply because she, um, she often is talking very down about herself. She's also t- often telling the Lord how unworthy she is, how she can't do this, like you need to pick somebody else, which by the way, is pretty typical. You know, when, the, when the Lord calls, you to some specific mission, to some specific purpose, I think a lot of us, our natural response is no pick somebody else. I mean, yeah, you see that play out throughout the course of all scripture history. Um, Look at, you know, well, yeah, I mean, you can look at all sorts of examples like of that throughout, throughout, um, look at the burning bush, right? It's like, um, no, I don't want to do this. Are you sure you want me to go back and free the Egyptian people? And God is like, yes, you're the one I've chosen for this. So, but anyway, in a very real way, if you, if you, real way, if you read Faustina's writings, um, she seems to have a melancholy side come out of her. Um, St. Therese, the little flower, like one of my all-time favorite saints, I'm, I'm very devoted to her and have studied her life and her story and her writings in, in many, many ways. Um, she herself, melancholy, choleric, a very serious person from, from the very moment of her being, um, but yeah, like things detailed and organized and, and is drawn to that. Yet she was also such a cheerful a cheerful sister to be around. When you read about her, you, you hear that, that people were drawn to her. Um, but anyway, yeah, she might be another example. And why we're on that, talking about that temperament blend of a melancholy choleric or a choleric melancholy, if that happens to be your blend, and this isn't bad, it's just, it is, it's just a statement. If you're a choleric melancholy or a melancholy choleric, you are the most intense of all the temperament blends. And again, that's not good or bad. Look at our great example of St. Saint Therese of Lisieux herself. Um, it just is. It's just you're an intense person. You get things done. You're a perfectionist. You're organized. You're neat. You it, it, you know, it's just the way it is. It's not good or bad. It just is. So um, you you yourself, if you're a cleric melancholy or a melancholy cleric, are an intense person. And that's okay. It's just good to know that. Okay, so generally, when I teach this class to a group, this is where we would take a little break. I have another handout. And again, if you want these handouts... Go to my website, theworldisnoisy.com, and I and email me, and I will email you these handouts so that you can have them and you can use them as you wish. Um, but we normally take the second part of class to take a little test to see if we can figure out what our temperaments are. So we take a few minutes, you check some boxes that has a list of strengths and weaknesses. You total up at the bottom how many check marks you've checked in these strengths and in these weaknesses, and you're trying to figure out which of these four temperaments you are. So that's generally where we would go in the class, but since we're doing this remotely and you're just hearing the audio, um, again, you can email me and I'll send you the test we typically do in class, or I'm sure if you just Googled um, temperaments quiz that you could find stuff online where you could actually take a test and, and figure out your temperament from there. And just a few notes when you do that, when you go to take a test to try to figure out what your particular temperament is. Um, remember, our temperaments are inborn, right? They're given to us from the moment of our creation. They are natural, instinctive 
responses, right? There are tendencies to react. And so when you're filling out your test, you want to answer the questions not based on maybe how you respond now as a 50-year-old who's learned and grown and molded things, but as you, how you would respond as a young child before you've you've grown in any sort of virtue, right? So you kind of want to take the test based on what your what your instinct is. Not necessarily what you've learned is better behavior, but what instinctually you want to respond to that. Um, with that being said, sometimes kids, um, students have a difficult time pinpointing who they are. And mostly it's just because of a lack of self-awareness. Like we just, we don't look at ourselves that way. And so we're not really aware. We just have a lot of blinders. We're not really aware of who we are. And so I always encourage their spouse, or I'm sorry, their, their, mo- their parents, to take the test for them if they can't figure out who they are. Have mom or dad take the test because they kind of they kind of have a better idea of, of who you are and might be able to help you. With that being said, you could also have a spouse take the test for you or someone who knows you, a dear friend who knows you really, really well. If you're struggling pinpointing where you are at on, on the spectrum, which of these four temperaments mostly relates to you, you could have a loved one or a spouse take the test for you. Um... What else? There's other reasons why you might not be able to clearly tell who you are. So if you take a test online or you email me and I send you the test we normally take and you still can't quite figure out who you are. Well, one, like I already mentioned, you just have a lack of self-knowledge. So if that's the case, have a loved one, a parent, a spouse, somebody like that, take the test for you. That normally works. Um, two would be, you know, maybe you have habitual sin in your life. Um, you know, maybe for example, a choleric is typically a vault. They typically keep secrets really, really well. But maybe you grew up in a house where it was just common and natural to gossip and to talk about other people all the time, nonstop. And so maybe you've learned over the years just to gossip. And so naturally and instinctively, you're really good at keeping secrets. But now you've gotten to this habitual sin, you've gotten into this bad habit of gossip. And so when you go to fill out the test, you're not really pinpointing, you're not really answering the questions as to who you really are. Um, at your core instinctually. The flip side of that can also be true. So you've made spiritual progress. You've grown in virtue. You've uprooted vice over the years. And when I say you, I mean you've cooperated with the grace of God to do these things because we recognize this is all a gift from the Lord, right? That it's through through his grace and by his grace that, that we are uprooting any sort of sin in our life and growing in virtue. But maybe you've been doing that for years and years and years. And so you've been shedding the weaknesses. You've been becoming a more well-rounded person. And so when you go to take the test, again, it's it's not particularly clear because you're you're looking at your your what who you are now as opposed to who you instinctually are. Okay, does that make sense? Um, another example could be mental illness. Um, so you know there are a, a slew of personality disorders, and quite honestly, this this isn't a joke. It's very serious, and and mental illness. And if you're suffering with a personality disorder or any sort of mental illness, then it might be very very difficult for you to pinpoint your temperament, and that's okay. Okay. Um, so sometimes that's that's a situation or an issue. Also, it could be a dysfunctional upbringing. Might be another reason that you can't quite pinpoint where you fall and which of these four temperaments are, are yours or are your, which is your temperament blend, which two are yours. So what do I mean by that? A dysfunctional upbringing. Well, let's say a sanguine child is raised in a very strict home with two melancholy choleric parents. Let's say that they're, you know, your typical melancholy clerics. Let's let's even say they're in the military and everything's about order and neatness and perfection. And so this sanguine grows up and, you know, is doing cartwheels all over the house and just wants to sing and dance and have fun. But the very serious, structured, melancholy cleric parents are saying, quit doing that, go back to work. 
And so maybe this, this sanguine child grows up thinking, well, it must not be good for me to do this. It must not be, um, this must be bad. This must be something bad to want to just always have fun. And so you learn that and that goes into your memory bank. And then you grow up and you think, well, I'm, I'm not, I'm a very serious person. I've always been a very serious person, but maybe it's because, you know, you had, you were involved in some of this dysfunctional upbringing. And so you haven't really let your true self shine forth because it's been, um, it's been masked in a way your whole life. Does that kind of make sense? So those are reasons why, You might not be able to quite figure out who you are. And if you Google and take a test online, it's quite possible that they would walk you through that as well. But at this point, we're going to pick up in the class with that you've taken some sort of a test and you've got an idea of who you are. You've recognized perhaps what your dominant temperament is. You're a cleric, you're a sanguine, you're a phlegmatic, you're a melancholy, and then maybe even perhaps you've recognized what your secondary temperament is. And by the way, we can be really, we can be different percentages of these. I have an aunt who is, uh, who will admit that she's very dominant choleric, like she's like 98% choleric and maybe her secondary one, which is melancholy is like 2%. If I look at myself over the years, um, I mean, there's times where you can see that my sanguine side has been more dominant than my choleric side, but I think for the most part, I'm pretty evenly balanced between the two. It's it's like a 50-50 blend. Um, they, they seem to really play off of each other pretty pretty balanced. But like I said, it can be really anywhere in between. You can be really dominant in one and your secondary one might be really low or it can be, you know, a 50-50 split. Um, and again, I think the more you study this, the more you discern it, the more you figure it out, the more that makes sense to you. But at this point in the class, we're going to pick up, like you've taken some sort of a test, like you have an understanding of who you are. And we're going to spend a little bit of time talking not so much about our strengths, because here's the thing. Your strengths have been bearing fruit in your life from the very beginning of your life. They naturally bear fruit, okay? If we really want to grow, grow, if we really want the Lord to mold us and shape us, if we really want to, to become these people that God has created us to become, then we have to spend a little bit of time looking at our weaknesses. And that's not because I want us all to leave class today feeling bad about ourselves. Absolutely not. I do not want you to feel like you're a terrible person. I just want to shed light on these dark little corners in each of our temperaments that can really be holding us back from growing and from maturing if we're not careful. And so we're going to spend this next part of class talking really about about our strengths a little bit, yes, but about the weaknesses of each of the four temperaments and the things we need to watch out for with those weaknesses, okay? Okay. All right, so let's dive into these with a little more detail. First of all, if you have the handout that um, I sent out that I usually use with my classes on this, the quiz that we take during class, if you have that from me, the first temperament, which isn't named on your list, it's left blank. Um, the first temperament is the melancholic temperament. And so that's where we're going to begin as we as we um, really dive into these on a deeper level. First of all, you remember the melancholy, just a quick review, the melancholy was energized by ideas. Their P word is, of course, perfect, right? These are our perfectionists, our introverts, energized by ideas and and by depth and have high ideals. And so a few years ago, as I was reflecting and growing in my own study of the temperaments, I read a book called The Seven Capital Sins, and that is um, published by Tan Publishing. And what was interesting as they talked about these 
that broke down the seven capital sins is they broke down the root of all sin. Of course, I'm talking about pride. And then in this book, they talked about how um, depending upon your particular temperament, which of these four temperaments you are, your pride shows itself in a different way based on based on your temperament. So we're going to talk about that now. First with the melancholy. Your pride as a melancholy shows yourself shows itself in the form of self-pity. So woe is me. Um, melancholies have a tendency to um, play the victim. You know, everybody's out to get me. Melancholies have a tendency to be overly sensitive. We talked about St. Therese, the little flower earlier, being a melancholy. And this is what her childhood was really represented by an, an oversensitive nature. And she was always a pious, devout young young girl. She was raised in a very devout home. She was always a pious, a pious child. But she was incredibly oversensitive. And she writes about that in her story of the soul about her oversensitive nature. And it was a grace that re- she received um, one Christmas, I believe when she was, it was before she entered the convent. And she entered the convent at 15. So I don't know, around 13 or 14, where she received this grace where the Lord helped her to recognize this oversensitive nature and then um, removed it from her through this act of grace. So she calls it her moment of greater conversion. But anyway, that's that's the essence of pride in the melancholy. Pride in the melancholy shows itself in the form of self-pity, this oversensitive, this oversensitive nature. Now let's also talk about this. The greatest this is another way that I've, I've thought about this over there that I think helps me understand and, and helps me teach like what we need to look out for, what, what the weaknesses of our temperaments are. Again, not to make us feel bad about ourselves, but to shed light in dark corners of our lives so that through, with, and by God's grace, we can mold and shape and, and become better rounded people centered on Christ. So here's another way that I like to look at each of these. What is the greatest gift of each of these four temperaments? right? And then to think about if that's our greatest gift, what might be the great greatest hurdle we have to look out for, the greatest obstacle that might try to um, stop us from making progress in the spiritual life. Okay, so for a melancholy, again, pride in a melancholy shows itself in the form of self-pity. And the greatest gift of a melancholy, remember, melancholies are energized by ideas, right? Their greatest gift is, quite honestly, their mind, Their mind is their greatest gift. Their depth is their greatest gift. And so what might be a temptation for them that we have to look out for? Well, overthinking, okay, which often happens with the melancholy. They get lost in their thoughts. They overthink even even sometimes the smallest things. We already talked about how melancholies have to watch out for, um, you know, holding grudges and, and remembering all the negatives and not being able to forgive. But even in simpler things, sometimes a melancholy's mind is a, is a difficult is difficult to turn off, to shut down. And so keep that in mind if you yourself are a melancholy or if you're raising a melancholic child, that, that your mind is really one of your greatest, if not your greatest gift as a melancholy. And so just be aware that you, you will often be tempted to overthink things. Okay. And so be aware of that and have some coping mechanisms to those, to pull yourself out of that. If that come, if that comes into play where you are overthinking matters, if you're thinking things over and over and over and over again. Okay. The next one, if you have the handout that I I usually use in front of you, the next temperament on our quiz that we'll talk about is sanguine. Okay. Remember sanguine was our temperament, um, that this is our fun temperament. The P word is popular. Sanguines are energized by people, by talking. And so staying on this same theme, the greatest gift of a sanguine is in fact their joy, 
their cheerfulness, and yes, quite honestly, their tongue, their ability to bring people from all walks of life together to bring, and which, which is a beautiful gift because, you know, we are many parts, but we are all one body and sanguines have what, what is just commonly referred to as the gift of gap, right? They can talk and they can bring people together and they can make friends out of, out of anyone at any time. And, and so this is their greatest gift. And so what might the sanguine need to watch out for? Well, the sanguine might need to watch out for over-talking, right? Talking too much. And again, we, we mentioned that briefly earlier as we were going through a description of the sanguine temperament. Um, remember, knowing what to say is as important as knowing when to stop talking. And so really that's an aspect of your, of your personality, of your temperament that is a, greatest, a great gift, if not your greatest gift of being a sanguine. But be mindful of the fact that often as a sanguine, naturally, we don't know when to stop talking. And so we need to invite the Lord's grace into that aspect, into our life, into that perhaps dark corner of our life, and allow his grace to mold us and shape us and, and to grow in virtue in that and, and knowing how and when to let other people speak and, and knowing when to be silent, because that is also a gift. Okay, again, coming from this book, The, Four, the Seven Deadly Sins by Tan Publishing, um, breaking down the temperament of sanguine, what was mentioned in that book was that pride in the for, in uh, the sanguine temperament comes in the form of self-centeredness. So that's not too surprising when we talked about sanguines being popular, having magnetic personalities, you know, from the time they're little people, they know how to like draw a crowd around them and put on a show. These are your kids who like are putting on, you know, shows and singing and dancing in the living room and just always from the time they're little are just naturally the center of attention. And so that's where the pride tends to show itself in the sanguine, in this form of self-centeredness. It's all about me, right? It's all about me and it's all about people liking me. So just keep in mind, um, just keep an eye out for that if you are a sanguine or if you're raising a sanguine child. Something else that I forgot, so let's backtrack a little bit. Let's go back to the melancholy. So a few other sins that you might want to especially watch out for if you are in melancholy. Um, remember thinking about melancholies being our great thinkers, our temperament who are energized by ideas. Watch out for envy, you know, jealousy of other people. Um, watch out for, again, we already talked about this, unforgiveness, holding on to grudges. Um, watch out for being scrupulous, you know, that this this is a, a form of pride in where we obsess about thing, the spiritual life. We, we obsess about our, our pious rituals or our pious devotions or people who struggle with scruples might feel like they need to go to, to, go to the sacra sacrament of confession over and over and over and over again. They have a difficult time accepting God's mercy because they get wrapped up in the details of everything. And so we need to watch out for that as well. And in terms of the sanguine, what sins do does the sanguine need to watch out for in in perhaps a particular way? And of course, no temperament is immune to any of the sins. These are just ones that might show it show themselves perhaps more um, frequently in these temperaments. So if you're a sanguine, watch out for sins of impurity, you know, um, um, lust. Um, those types of things. And why would that be? Why would that be? Remember, this, for, to the sanguine, it's all about fun. And we talked about how a sanguine has a difficult time, um, you know, thinking about consequences to, to, um, to behaviors. And so if it's fun now, and I'm having fun, and you're having fun, and it's all in good fun, then what's the big deal is, is kind of that. So, so watch out for that. Um, watch out for gluttony. And again, jealousy, you know, coveting things. Um, gluttony too, because 
it's fun, you know, it's fun to indulge yourself, it's fun to eat, it's fun to drink. And so sometimes you might have a difficult time with with gluttony. And so how do you uproot that? We talked about this briefly before, but when you're trying to grow in virtue, what you need to do, I'm so sorry, let's let's reverse that. When you are trying to uproot a vice, when you are trying to uproot a sin or uproot a vice, what you need to do is you need to practice the opposite virtue. And so if as a sanguine you are prone to gluttony in terms of, you know, shopping, let's say, let's say you have a shopping problem, you're just always spending and you're not very responsible with money. Well, what practicing the opposite virtue would mean you would put a hold on on spending, perhaps you tell a loved one who you know, and who you love and who you know, is going to hold you accountable to give you a budget. And in fact, in my own life, that is exactly what had to happen for me, in order for me to learn responsibility with with um, money, I told you that 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 was something I struggled with for a very long time, um, until finally, I came to grips with it and decided that, you know, I needed to grow up, I, I needed to be more responsible, that was the good, holy thing that God was calling me to do. And so I went to my husband. And of course, he was thrilled to hear that because he um, is rather good with money and, and is naturally a saver. And so that's what he had to do with me. And it's kind of seems childish, you know, but in a sense, he just gave me an allowance every week. And he said, this is what you can spend. You can spend it on whatever you want. I don't care, but you don't get any more. When you're out, you're out. And again, it seems like childish, but that's exactly what I needed at that time. And so if you're trying to uproot a vice in your life, you practice the opposite virtue. Okay. So for a sanguine, especially, you need to learn to be content you need to um, learn to deny gratification, okay? So you want to binge watch the show on Netflix and instead you force yourself to hit stop and to walk away from the screen till the next day, till you watch another episode um, or whatever it might be. You can work this out. You're smart people, but you get the idea, right? If you're trying to uproot a vice or uproot a sin in your life, you practice the opposite virtue, okay? So talking now, going back to that very that very first book um, by the authors Art and Lorraine Bennett that I m- mentioned early on in this in this show, um, which by the way I recommend all three of their books again: the temperament God gave you, the temperament God gave your spouse, the temperament God gave your child. In their first book, the temperament God gave you, they have a little section that breaks down um, self talk. Self-talk, it's a self-talk that parents must challenge in their kids. So they're talking about parenting and giving some parenting tips, but it really applies to each of us. So I want to spend a little bit of time touching on each of those. Since right now we're talking about the melancholy and the sanguine, let's start there. First with the melancholic, um, a melancholy self, the self-talk of a melancholy, it reads, is my self-esteem is based on meeting my high expectations. Self-doubt means I'm humble. And again, this is self-talk that is not true. This is just what we feed ourselves in our minds, but actually has no truth to it. And so we have to watch out for that, both in our in our own, own minds, but also in the minds of our children. And we need to uproot these lies and then fill our minds with truth. So our self-esteem, our self-worth has nothing to do with high expectations on and on whether or not we meet them. The truth is, is our self-worth is based on God on what, how God sees us. And God loves us because we're his children, right? Um, self-doubt means I'm humble. Well, no, it doesn't. It just means you're prideful. It just means you're, ta- you're thinking about yourself. You know, woe is me again, that victim mentality. The sanguine, on the other hand, the self-talk of, of a sanguine is I must be fine. Lots of people like me. 
My self-worth depends on what you think of me. I will adapt myself to the group. So again, this is this idea that my self-worth is is based on what everybody else in the world thinks about me. So if I have a lot of friends and everybody thinks I'm cute and I'm I'm drawing all these people towards me and I'm the center of the attention, well then I my life must mean something. But if if people don't like me or people are upset at me or people don't think I'm cute or I'm not the star of the show, well then I feel like a terrible person. And, and again, that last line, and I will adapt myself to the group. Um, yeah, Sanguins kind of are notorious for that, where um, it's all about being that center of attention and keeping that focus all on, on all in themselves. And so they have a difficult time, you know, being the being humble. And so that's that's that virtue that we need to practice if we're trying to uproot that vice of being self-centered. We need to practice humility, right? We need to force ourselves to not be the center of attention, to let somebody else have the light, right? And, and John the Baptist in the gospel gives us the perfect the perfect sentence for that, the perfect phrase for that, the perfect perhaps mantra for that, in that he must increase and I must in- decrease. Talking about, of course, Jesus and himself. Jesus must increase. I must decrease. This must become about him and not about me. Okay. So now let's talk about the final two. So if you, again, are looking at my handout of the quiz, the third temperament that was listed on the, the quiz is the phlegmatic temperament. Phlegmatics, um, phlegmatics greatest gift. Okay, we talked about just a quick review. Phlegmatics are energized by watching. Their P word is peaceful. Their greatest gift, quite honestly, is their carefree attitudes and their their peacefulness and their ability to make peace and to and to to be these peacemakers it's a beautiful gift that doesn't come naturally to really any other temperament except to theirs so it is their greatest gift um, or or perhaps one of the greatest gifts but what perhaps then does the phlegmatic need to watch out for if being a peacemaker is their greatest gift then what might be the temptation well the temptation quite honestly, might be to always keep the peace at all cost, to never ruffle feathers, to never take a stand. And quite honestly, as Christians in this world, we know that the Lord Jesus calls us as baptized Christians to stand up for what is good and what is true and what is just and what is right and what is beautiful. And so there are times in our own life, sometimes in big ways, but most of the time in very small ways, that the Lord asks us to take a stand. He asks us to speak truth, right? And for a phlegmatic, this is going to be especially difficult, especially difficult, Um, but we can't be fence riders. And so that's something you need to look out for if you are a phlegmatic. Again, from the book, The Seven Deadly Sins, published by Tan Publishing, pride in a phlegmatic comes in the form of self-complacency, self-complacency, so what does that mean? That means, uh, I'm all right. I'm all right. You know, this person might need to work on some things. And certainly that person over there has a few, few problems they might want to uproot and work on. But you know what? I'm good. I'm good. Everything's fine with me. So it's, it's that, that laissez-faire attitude that, you know what? Let's not work too hard. Let's not get too worked up. I'm, I'm probably fine. It's probably fine. So this is, the, this is the pride that shows itself if you are a phlegmatic Sins you might want to watch out for if you're a phlegmatic. Well, this, the sin of sloth, which is essentially what spiritual laziness, right? Remember, our phlegmatics are typically um, procrastinators. At least they have a tendency to be procrastinators. So watch out for that. And to watch out for, um, you know, 
wearing masks in front of people because as a phlegmatic, you want so badly not to ruffle feathers and you want so badly to avoid conflict because you are a peacemaker by nature. But as a result of that, you often from the very earliest of ages have gotten into the habit of not being who you truly are and not being honest with yourself or with others. Phlegmatics have a tendency to be um, passive or perhaps even passive aggressive. Um, So they don't really know how to speak their truth in, in an authentic Um, assertive way because they're so afraid of upsetting somebody. Um, And so watch out for that if you're a phlegmatic. Um, Moving to the fourth one listed on the quiz that that is part of the handouts I typically use is the choleric temperament. Um, Again, this is our most productive temperament. Uh, The cholerics are energized by work, by doing. Um, Their P word is powerful. Remember, these people just cannot be ignored. And pride, not surprisingly, in a cleric shows itself in the form of self-will. And we talked about this at the very beginning of this class today, that self-will, that my way is right, my way is the only way, where this is how I want it, and this is the way I want it done, and this is the time that I want it done, and so this is how it's going to be done. So imposing our self-will. And of course, part of our walks with Christ is, and one of the greatest calls to action is, is deeper humility, is this surrender of our will and this acceptance of God's will. So this is particularly challenging for the choleric who from the, from the very earliest of ages is, is, um, has this attitude of I'm right and I'm always right and my way is always the best way and the right way and the most productive way. And if you disagree with me, well, then you're wrong and you're just an idiot, you know? Um, so, so yeah, uprooting that that sin, especially this this imposing your self will and and this this false belief that you are always right. So also um, sins to watch out for if you are a cleric. Um, a big one for a cleric is anger. Uh, clerics are very passionate people, and there's absolutely nothing wrong with that. We talked about. At the beginning, you know, once clerics have their eyes and their minds and their gaze and their hearts set on the right things, they cannot be stopped. Um, you know, they can they can be martyred and can go through these gruesome deaths, and yet they will not deny our Lord and, and their faith in God and their belief in Jesus Christ always withstands. Um, and also on the flip side of that, with this passion, anger can become a part of that. I often think of the sons of thunder, you know, Jesus points them out in in the gospel as well and how he nicknamed them the sons of thunder. Um, And perhaps they were both cholerics as well. But anyway, just this passion. So watch out for that. Watch out for impatience. Watch out for pushiness. Watch out for being a very demanding person. And again, if you are trying to uproot this sin in your life and this vice in your life, then you practice the opposite virtue. If you are an incredibly impatient person, then start practicing patience. Force yourself to wait, you know? Um, Force yourself to go to the longest line in the grocery store instead of the shortest one, right? And, And you put yourself in situations where you have to start practicing this patience, okay? And then that's how slowly with this grace of God and with with continuing to see, receive his strength and his graces in, in the sacraments, sacrament of reconciliation, the sacrament of the Holy Eucharist, that you continue to you're, continue to receive what you need to uproot the sin and to continue to grow in virtue. Okay, so now for the self-talk um, that 
that comes in these two temperaments. And again, this is coming from the book, The Temperament God Gave You by Art and Lorraine Bennett. The self-talk of a phlegmatic, I'd rather give up my own desires, be alone, and be unhappy than be in the midst of conflict. Yeah. So remember that if you're a phlegmatic or you have a phlegmatic child, that this is that that untrue self-talk that's going through your head, that you will give up everything, give up whatever morals you have, as long as it means there's not conflict, right? Um, the choleric self-talk, my self-worth is based on what I accomplish. I have no self-esteem outside of my projects. Yep, that's a big one to watch out for. Cholerics are doers. Cholerics like to get things done. And so... Um, they, that's that's where they, they falsely believe comes their self-worth. So if I got a lot of things done today, if I was able to accomplish a great deal, if I got everything off my list that needed to get accomplished, then I'm, I'm worthy of love. Then I'm a good person. But if I wasn't able to accomplish anything today, if maybe I was sick and I couldn't accomplish anything or, you know, um, just other people needed me and so I didn't get anything done that was on my list for the day, well, then I'm not worth anything, which again, these are all lies. We have to uproot those, but that's the, the common self-talk of the choleric temperament. Okay, let's tie this all together and wrap this up. I want to go back to the beginning. You remember I asked you a question and had you jot down the answer. And this question I asked you, I, I feel like I mentioned this, but it, it w- was from, again, the book I just referenced, The Temperament God Gave You by Art and Lorraine Bennett. And here's the quiz again. Sirens begin to whirl behind you, and you realize that a police car is pulling you over. You think his radar gun couldn't possibly be correct. I was hardly going over the speed limit. The cars in front of me were speeding. Who are we talking about here? That, of course, is our choleric, right? His radar gun couldn't possibly be correct, right? I'm not wrong. This radar gun must be wrong. I was hardly going over the speed limit. It's not my fault. The cars in front of me were speeding, okay? This is your typical choleric response. The second response, oh no, I've heard of people getting arrested for this. That, of course, is our melancholy. Worst case scenario, doomsday, the sky is falling, everything is terrible, and I was speeding, and now I'm going to jail. Okay, that's your melancholy. Um, the third response, was I driving fast? What's the speed limit on this road anyway? That's your sanguine, right? Kind of out and kind of out there, kind of, um, you know, just this this cheerful, bubbly person who, who maybe isn't too focused on like the here and the now. And so you're kind of always out in outer space, so to speak. Um, and yeah, can I, by the way, tell you that I've gotten pulled over pulled over before. And that was like my exact response. Like, was I driving too fast? And what's the speed limit? And where am I actually? So, so yeah, that's a typical sanguine response. And then the last response was, do I have my wallet? And where did I put that car registration? So then that of course is our phlegmatic, you know, this people pleasing, like, I don't want to upset this police officer. I already upset him. I want to avoid this conflict. I'm going to follow the rules. I got to get this stuff out. I got to get my wallet. But I get, so that's your phlegmatic. So my question to you is, were you right? I asked you to answer that question at the beginning of the show, of the show and to go back. And now that you perhaps have taken a test of your own and have tuned into what temperament you are or what your temperament blend is, were you right? Look, sometimes we are, and sometimes we're not. It's just a fun little, it's just a fun little test. So It's okay if you weren't right or if you didn't guess that. Okay, and then let me give you one more example as just kind of a pop quiz for you just to make sure that you've got this, that you understand these four different temperaments and that you can take what you've learned today on this show 
and start applying it to your life, to your life personally, to your family life, to be to perhaps your work life. What have we learned? So I'm going to give you a little quiz. And this is going to be interesting because, of course, I, like I already mentioned, I'm talking to my computer screen, and so I'm not going to hear your response. But I've given this class so many times in person that I'm just going to imagine all of the responses I have received in the past. Okay, so I'm going to give you an example. Four different people, one of each of the four temperaments is standing in a room, and none of them know how to swim. They've never swam before, not one of them. And so the question is posed to them, or the challenge is posed to them, would you like to learn how to swim? So one temperament says, learn how to swim? Absolutely. You know what? I've never done it before, but I'm going to be the best swimmer that's ever swam in the entire life. And you know what? I'm good right now. Let's just jump in there. I'll get in that water and I'll figure it out once I'm in there. What temperament is that, do you think? That is our choleric, right? That they exude this confidence. They believe they're the best at everything, even if they've never done it before. And it's it's just this bold confidence. And yeah, I've got this. I'll figure it out. There's no need to practice or prep. I'll just dive right in. And once I'm in there, things will work themselves out. Okay, that's typically your choleric. Okay, the next temperament says, well, swim, huh? Um, well, I've never really wanted to swim, but... Um, do you want me to learn how to swim? Because if you want me to learn how to swim, then I'll learn how to swim. Yeah, that's our phlegmatic, right? The people pleaser, avoid conflict at all costs. If you, if this is what you want for me, then, then great. I'll do it. I'll do it for you. Um, okay, the next temperament, their response is swim? Yeah, sounds fun. Are there going to be other people there too? You know what? It sounds great. Let's have a party. I'll bring the chips. I'll bring the dips. Make sure everybody brings their own drinks and let's just make a day out of it while we're there. That of course is our sanguine, right? It's all about having fun. It's all about there's a party. It's all about being this center of attention and drawing people together and being around people and you get the idea. And then of course the last temperament, the last response Swim? Well, yeah, I suppose I can learn how to swim. But before I actually get in the water, I think I better do a little research. Um, I'm going to read a book on it. I'll probably watch a few YouTube videos. And then I'll probably start in the baby pool. I'm going to dip my toe in. I'm going to get used to it. I'm going to get the feel. I'm going to get back out. I'm going to read another book. I'm going to watch a few more videos. I'm going to analyze this by every angle. I'm going to talk to experts, figure out how to do it. Maybe I'll take a lesson or two. And then after spending years studying and preparing, perhaps I'll be ready to dive in the water and learn for myself. That, of course, speaking in extremes, often points to the melancholy, our deep thinkers who like to analyze and think and to work things through into practice, okay? So again, talking in extremes today, um, this isn't meant to make you feel bad about your temperament or about who you are but who, or about who God created you to be. It's actually meant to do the opposite. It's meant to give you this sense of peace and freedom to say, oh my gosh, there is a reason I'm like this. There's a reason it's so hard for me to be around conflict. There's a reason that I overthink things all the time. There's a reason that I love to party. <laughs> There's a reason that I have a really hard time following and that I always want to be the leader. And so this is meant to shed light on that and fill you not with pain about who you are, but with peace and with joy and to give you hope for, um, for just how to become even more molded and even more rounded and even turn into even more of the person that God has created you to be. Okay, so on that note, let's talk about the person of Jesus Christ, because this is a topic that gets brought up in class every now and again, to wonder and to think about what temperament was Jesus? What temperament was Jesus? 
And I've had some great discussions about this in the past. And I really think above all things, it's just something to take to prayer for yourself. When you read the gospels and you read about the life of Jesus, you can perhaps think about that and spend so much time reflecting and getting to know our Lord better in this way. I'm going to let you in on some things that have folded in my own heart and in my own mind and in my own prayer about what temperament was Jesus. And my answer to that is honestly, Jesus was fully man, yes, and is also fully God. So he's not like us. And so it's quite possible that Jesus could be a perfect blend of all four. And here's the basis for my reasoning here, or for for my argument here. First of all, Jesus came to us and was known as what? The Prince of Peace. And so doesn't that perfectly embody the phlegmatic temperament? right? This idea of I've come to bring peace, right? That he is this prince of peace and not the peace that we were expecting, you know, not the, not the peace that, is, that was expected by the, by the Jewish people at that time for the long-awaited Messiah, but a deeper peace, the peace that surpasses all understanding is what he tells us. And then think about Jesus in his public ministry as he was going out and preaching to the crowds, and how he was drawing all of these people to him. That the, Often you read about how the crowds were pressing in on him. They just wanted to get close. At one point he had to get into a boat and go onto the water while the, and preach to the crowds who were on the shore because there were so many and they were, they were essentially suffocating him. And so he couldn't preach because he was so magnetic. And he spoke words of such comfort that just drew people towards him. And of course that would be our sanguine, would it not? And then you think about these times, you read in scripture about these times where the Lord Jesus got up early in the morning and he went to these deserted places and he, and he left everyone and he spent time in prayer with the Father, right? This time for deep um, reflection, this time for deep personal prayer, this time for deep immersion into, into the Father, into his Father, into our Father. And that, of course, sheds light on perhaps the melancholy side of him. And then, of course, we know why Christ was here. He was here not to bring rainbows and butterflies. He was here to suffer and to die for us. And not just any death, a gruesome, torturous death. And he knew that. And as he was, as he was sharing that with the apostles, with those that were closest to him, they were rejecting it. And you can think Think about that response of when Peter was was saying, no, Lord, I don't want this to happen to you. And Jesus was just abrupt and very clear with Peter, get behind me, Satan, right? You are not thinking like God thinks, but you're thinking like man thinks, essentially saying, this is what I'm here to do. And whether you are with me or not, this is what I am doing. And, and also elsewhere in scripture, it tells us that Jesus was resolutely determined. And I love that phrase, that he was resolutely determined. His food, he says, was to do the will of God. And so his heart and his mind and his soul was focused on doing this, on doing what he was sent here to do, on suffering and on dying. And then, of course, on being resurrected for us, for our sins, right? And so nothing was going to stop him. No, nothing was going to hold him back from that. And that resolute determination is like perfectly defines 
the choleric temperament. And so something, no matter what your temperament is, something to reflect on in prayer, something where you can look to our Lord and you can look to him for comfort and for strength. And yes, even for relatability, right? That we know that the Lord Jesus knows us better than we even know ourselves and that it is in him, with him, and through him that we are brought to perfection, right? As his beloved children, as his beloved brothers and sisters. Okay, so I hope you learned something today. I hope this was interesting to you. I hope you learned something. Again, if you want copies of those handouts or you want to connect with me or you have questions for me in any way, um, you can go to my website, theworldisnoisy.com. I'm also on Facebook. You can um, follow my page. It's Julia Monin author. So you can follow me on Facebook at Julia Monin author, or you can send me a message via Facebook as well. And I'd be happy to communicate with you that way too. Uh, the two books that I referenced throughout the show today, throughout the class today was The Temperament God Gave You by Art and Lorraine Bennett. Lorraine is spelled L-A-R-A-I-N-E, Bennett, B-E-N-N-E-T-T. I also referenced the book, The Seven Capital Sins, which is published by Tan Publishing. And the last time I checked, both of these books were still available for print. Um, I've found them both on Amazon. Okay, so stay in touch with me. Know that I'm praying for you, and I humbly ask that you pray for me as well. And let's close this up by closing in prayer. This is Psalm 139. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from far away. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, O Lord, you know it completely. You hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is so high that I cannot attain it. For it was you who formed my inward parts. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works that I know very well. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.